Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Let's join your hosts, Phil Dark and Dr. Karen Hutchison. Hey everyone, welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. You know, I just want to wish everyone out there a happy new year. Happy 2018. I hope that your year is as starting as good as mine has. Uh, Well, if you're new to the podcast, I'm Phil Dark, uh, the host of this show, and my co-host, Karen Hutchinson, is unfortunately not able to join me today, but we look forward to getting her back on real soon. Today, we decided to do a little uh, looking back to 2017 and the top 10 episodes that we were able to share with you. Um, These episodes are are the top 10, not because they're my favorite, although, you know, I I, I like all the episodes the same, as as I've told you guys before. I have some that uh, have some some special meaning to me, but, uh, you know, these are based on uh, the downloads as well as just the, 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 uh, the listener feedback that we were able to get over the course of the year. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing them with you and they are going to go from, uh, 10 down to one to give you, you know, keep the suspense going a little bit. Um, if you're, if you're one that, uh, you know, just can't, uh, can't wait, you can go to the show notes and, and all of them will be listed there as well so that you can find them. If, if, you, if you listen to this uh, these segments and you're just like, I got to get more, which I imagine with most, if not all of them, you will because there is so much more to these interviews than the little bit of segments, uh, the little segments that we're going to be able to share with you today. Um, and there is just so much goodness, so much wisdom in all of these interviews that I encourage you, even if you've heard them already, go back, listen to them again, because I know over the last few days, as I've been able to listen to them and pick out these little clips, these little sound bites from these amazing interviews, it's been so hard to pick. And I have learned all over again. You know, when I interview these folks, I learn a 10, when I listen to them again, when they come out, cause I do that with all of them. Um, I learn more when we do recasts, I learn again, and I know that I learned this last time too. So I encourage you to do that as well. And we're going to kick it off with number 10. This is Mike Doris and he's with Orphan Outreach. Uh, we had his, uh, his interview back in November. This man has over, had over four decades of experience. And in this clip, Mike provides, uh, his take on the complex, difficult issue of the residential orphan care debate. You know, in the interview, he also discussed his, his view on mission trips, foster care, other lessons he's learned, and his vast uh, experience. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But here, listen to what Mike has to say uh, about really the complexity and uh, how, we, how we can look really with fresh eyes this, uh, this debate about residential care. Well, the residential debate is an interesting one because it's, uh, it's probably of all the topics that we discuss is the push toward family care and permanency and what role does residential play in that, if any. Mm-hmm. Some would say it has no role because right. it's a bad model. Um, you know, residential care has been with us for a long time, historically, but it grew significantly during the 1800s. And you had uh, Oliver Twist and a lot of uh, news reports, investigative reports that went into residential care in the 1800s that generated a lot of negative press because they were not run well. Right. And, and it, there were a lot of abuses that happened. And so you had the big commission with Teddy Roosevelt, the White House in the early 1900s, where you had advocates saying, we need to, uh, we need to do away with this residential model and we need to really support families. 
And it actually was the seed that started the welfare movement and giving payments to families to keep families together. And Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, uh, Franklin Roosevelt actually institutionalized that in a welfare system mm. and started that process and then it expanded in the 60s. So I entered into this field in, you know, in the 70s. Right. And there were a lot of those old institutions left. Um, I was actually went to work for Buckner in 1985, mm. and they were formed in 1879, wow. and have been a blessing to kids for a long time. Yeah, but I one of one of the jobs I had multiple jobs there during the 22 years I was there. But one of them was I was the administrator of the large campus on the, the original campus in Dallas. Oh wow! And so we had almost 400 children on campus. Uh, we had some programs out in the community, a little foster care, a little this and that, but it was primarily a residential program. And I remember in the early 90s, uh, Newt Gingrich came out with a really big uh, statement because he was doing welfare reform at the time under the Clinton administration. And so he, the big question again came up, well, you know, what are you going to do if you cut back on welfare? What are all, you know, these kids, what are we going to do about all these kids? And he said, well, we need to go back to the orphanage days. And he quoted Boys Town as the uh, right. as the example, you know, that we need more Boys Towns around. And so that created a huge debate. Well, at that same time at Buckner, we were that on the campus. We were tearing buildings down and changing our model to more of a, a full continuum of care, reducing the size of our residential program and doing family preservation, expanding foster care, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And so the Dallas Morning News picked up on it, and then CBS News picked up on it. We were on the national news, and you know about okay, you got two competing ideas here. Right. You have one that wants to expand residential, and the other, you know, then you got this program going completely the different direction. Right. And so you know, so that argument was rarely hotly debated in the '90s, and it kind of went away after welfare reform was implemented. But, you know, when I first started working for Buckner, we had an association in D.C. that was advocating to protect residential programs. And all the older institutions around the United States were part of that and to try to protect that model. And most of those programs now are well balanced. Most of them have foster care programs and they have less residential. And so the swing seems to be, you know, well, it's either or. Right. That, you know, you either have to have you're against residential or you're for residential. And my position is you need it all. Mm. Uh, you need the full to- toolkit because, you know, having worked with kids as long as I have um, on the uh, on the Buckner campus, for example, we would have kids that were doing great in group care. And we'd say, OK, it's a great time. We can step them down into foster care now. Mm-hmm. And we put them in foster care. And within two months, they would disrupt the children, mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. And they would, it would disrupt the foster care placement. And the reason was a lot, number of kids are just not, do not want or do not really fit well into a family setting. They can't take the intimacy because of their past and the, the damage that's happened or whatever the factors are. And they do better in group care. And uh, they're, it's much more effective. And so I think, you know, to me, I, the part that frustrates me in the argument uh, is that we tend to want to have a philosophy that fixes it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
we don't, you know, I think what we need to have is, is care that meets the needs of the kid. What should drive it is not a philosophy, but what should drive it is what does a kid need? Uh, what's going to be in their best interest? And right. I think residential has a place in the continuum. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that I've been to residential programs and have run residential programs that were an incredible blessing to kids. Mm. Uh, I think it is overused in countries. Mm -hmm. They're over-dependent on it. Uh, but at the same time, I think that uh, this, there's a quest right now. You hear a lot of this that the measure of success is how fast we empty out the orphanages. Mm -hmm. But the issue is that when you, when you make that your goal and you don't develop the resources and the programs you need to support the kids from, to where they're going, right. you end up hurting kids more than helping kids. Yeah. And so you need, to me, a blend of it all. And even today in our country, and as much as we tout foster care is a good alternative for out-of-home care, our foster care system is broken. Yeah, absolutely. And our prisons are full of kids that, mm -hmm. you know, or people that had grew up out of the foster care system. Now, that doesn't make foster care a bad right. program. It means it may not be administered right or kids were mis <coughs> misplaced uh, that wasn't appropriate. But even now today, we have residential programs. In Texas, for example, uh, we have kids that are sleeping in caseworkers' offices because they can't find a place for them to go. Mm. And most of the residential programs over the last 20 years have either downsize significantly or they're gone. Right. So there's no place to put kids in the meantime until you figure out where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's, uh, some of our discussions, because of philosophical reasons, um, limit the ability to care for kids and meet their needs because we're trying, trying to eliminate a certain type of care. Yeah. And I think we need it all. We need the full toolkit to help with kids. And now from that interview with Mike, we're going to, we're going to go to number nine, uh, which is Paul David Tripp, episode 70. And that again was, was, uh, towards the end of the year. And Dr. Tripp shares with us in this clip, the really, uh, the ambassador versus owner mentality in parenting. This, this interview shared so much about parenting, so much about uh, how uh, adoptive parents can, can uh, really care for their kids, but also how all parents, no matter whether biological, adopted, foster, really can, can love their kids, talked about marriage, talked about so many other things in this interview. But this clip is such an important thing for us to understand. It's really how we can be ambassadors and not owners when we're parenting our kids and what that means and what that looks like. So, so take a listen, and I, I strongly encourage, as with all these, again, go back and listen to the rest of this interview because there's so much more where this came from. The first one, which kind of goes throughout the whole book, is this, this idea of ambassador versus owner um, with our children. And um, can you talk to that? Uh, and not, it's not just with our children. It's really with everything that we have here on earth. But, but in, the concept, in the context of parenting, uh, how does this ambassador versus owner bear out? And I know you use it in particularly in the, with the concept of authority in the book. Um, mm. to, to and, and how that can flesh out this, this battle between ownership and ambassador mentalities in our parenting? So uh, there's, there's only two ways to conduct myself as a parent. I conduct myself as an owner or an ambassador. Ownership parenting is driven by this. 
what do I want uh, for my children? What do I want them to be? And what do I want to get from them? And what power do I have to produce that? The problem with ownership parenting is it puts me in the center. It's about me. It's about what I want. It's about what I think I need. It's about my reputation, my identity, my power, my control. Uh, And the children then become a vehicle for me getting what I want out of my life. And, And sadly, even for many well-meaning Christian parents, that's their approach. And, and that approach is about control and reputation. And uh, in moments of discipline, you, the greatest offense is the offense against you. How dare you do this to me? How could you do this after all I've done for you? Don't you know what my day's been like? That's all ownership stuff. And it never will ever produce what needs to be produced in the hearts of your children. Ambassadorial parenting says this, that I'm an ambassador and that, if you think about that, the only thing an ambassador ever does is represent. I've been put on earth and in relationship to these children in order to represent what God wants to do and what God is alone able to do in the life of these children. Uh, So my parenting is driven by his message, his methods, his character. My call is to faithfully represent his message, faithfully represent his methods, faithfully represent his character. And so think of how beautiful this is. God, who we can't see and we can't hear, makes his invisible authority and his invisible grace visible in the lives of children by sending parents of authority and parents of grace to represent him. Parents, that means you're the look on God's face. You're the tone of his voice. You're the touch of his hand. You're his attitude. That's your position. Now think about what this means for authority. It means I don't have a right to exercise authority any way I want to exercise it. Whether that's angry authority or lazy authority or selfish authority, because I'm meant to represent God's authority. That means every time I exercise authority in the lives of my children, it must be a beautiful picture of the authority of God. And the reason that's important is our children don't come into the world loving authority. They come into the world as little self-sovereigns, wanting to rule their own lives. You know, those little, those little fights about uh, what to eat are not about diet. This child hasn't read a diet book. They're about authority. This child says, you won't rule me. You won't tell me what to put in my mouth. Those, those battles about when to go to bed are not about sleep. This child hasn't done a sleep study and saying, I only need four hours. They're about authority. And so what I want to do is 
present authority as a loving thing, a tender thing, a gracious thing, a guiding thing, a protective thing, uh, so that my children will begin to think authority is a beautiful thing and it produces good things in my life. Now, if I, if I exercise authority in a selfish way or in an angry way, a me-centered way that hardens the rebellion against authority that's already in the lives of my children. Well, now we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to, with number eight, we're going to get Krish uh, Kandaya, who was the first guest we had that talked about the refugee crisis. We had a refugee crisis series uh, in the fall of uh, 2017. If you weren't able to listen to that or if you didn't get to all of it, I'd go back and listen to those for sure. But this this uh, clip from Krish um, talks about the vetting of refugees and really challenged me with, uh, with thinking about something. When, when you think about vetting from a biblical perspective, it kind of turns it upside down as so much in scripture does for us. Um, and so Chris really shares that with us. And again, the rest of this interview talks about the refugee crisis as do um, the rest of that series that, uh, that if you weren't able to listen, go check it out. But this is from Chris Kandaya and he's given us something to think about. When you look at vetting and, and you talk about that, if you really look through scriptural lens, mm. you would welcome in the worst. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Can you speak yeah. to that a little bit? Sure, sure, sure. That's right. So it, it is interesting that when we think about immigration um, and we do it in the UK and we do it in the US, we try to bring the cream of the world to us, don't we? So we're looking for people with high skills, high transferable uh, abilities, great qualifications, ability to earn. Um, and, and yet in Corinthians, um, Paul was asking um, the church there, hey, guys, before you were saved, how many of you were influential? You know, how many of you had power or authority? Actually, we, we were the worst and God welcomed us in. Um, it was in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our back record, if, if you like, that God welcomed us in. It, it's the same with the adoption story. We find it in the UK. Um, most adopters, and it's true for many Christians as well as those outside of the church, um, only come to adoption uh, because of infertility. And when you come because of infertility, you really want a baby. And you don't just want any old baby. You want a perfect baby. And if possible, a baby that looks like you. Um, and so you've got these, these criteria um, before you're willing to offer love and acceptance to somebody. But flip that around. You know, when God adopted us, um, what were the criteria? Did we have to be young? No. Did we have to be perfect physically? No. Uh, did, did we have to have no emotional baggage? No. We were sinners and Christ welcomed us in. So we have an upside down kingdom that welcomes um, the least and the last and the lost. You know, think, think about the, the parable of the great banquet. Um, Jesus says, look, go out into the highways and byways and find the, the poor and the lame and compel them to come in. These are the people that are going to share my feast. So I, I think we do need a different mindset. Now, of course, you know, we're not asking people to be stupid and to ignore wisdom, which is a great gift from God. Um, but I think we need an overall posture change towards the outsider. Well, if that didn't challenge you to think a little differently, I, I really don't know what will. Um, that was uh, from episode 57 uh, with Krish. Uh, this next is uh, number seven. 
and it's Tom Lukasik. He's with four kids in South Florida. And uh, this man eh, just is so inspiring. He's a man that is very humble. He's a man that has learned, again, learned over decades of foster care experience and running this organization. That's just a, a great place that's doing amazing work. Um, and this, this little clip, I just wanted you to hear from him, from his heart, where uh, he shares with us some of the lessons he's learned in his experience and what he wishes he would have known when he started fostering. Well, one thing I, we know today that I wish we would have known then but, um, is that empathizing with the child and what they've been through. We were trained very well. We were trained through an organization called the Teaching Family Association, and that did teach us a lot about understanding that child's trauma. Uh, but what I wish I would have, well, here's what I, and forgive me for kind of stammering here, but it's just, it's actually getting a little emotional just thinking back at those days. But the things that were done to the, those first six girls that came into our home that we were trying to help them overcome and help them get through were things that should not be done to any human being mm. and let alone five-year-old girls and nine-year-old girls and 12-year-old girls. Uh, so the biggest thing we knew that we had to do is we had to be Jesus with skin on for those kids. We had to love them unconditionally. We had to let them know that no matter what they did, we still loved them. We still dealt with the consequences of their behaviors and taught them through that. But more importantly than anything else was letting them know that we love them and Christ loved them, mm. which was pretty amazing since we were not in a Christian organization at that point. Mm. So, but all of those kids, we, they allowed us to take them to church. They allowed us to pray and do devotions and do everything we would just in, as our normal home. Cause that's what they wanted. They wanted normalcy for these children. So that was a huge blessing for us. Mm. And how, how did you, I mean, and this is just, hopefully you can remember back enough and it's just, a, it's not an easy question. So I, I, you know, if you say, I don't know, that's fine. But how did you, as a man, coming into this situation with these girls who have, you said, have been abused and things have been done to them that should never be done to any human being, empathize with them and really enter in to their life? And, and, and maybe how have you learned over the years how to do that better than maybe you did then? Well, there, there was a situation that happened on one of the very first nights. I can't remember if it was the first day or sometime in that first week that shocked me to my core but made me realize what was happening in a world that I was totally unaware of. So we're tucking kids in at night and normally, and I knew this from just previous history and professional work to be careful not to ever just be alone with mm -hmm. one of the girls all by myself. But Linda was just coming towards the bedroom and I went to tuck this one little girl into bed and I said, okay, I'll change her name. I'll say, oh, okay, Susie, it's time to go to sleep. And as I said that, she actually pulled the covers off of her and spread her legs mm. because that's what she expected. That's what she thought was going to happen from a man because that's where she had been. And I pulled the covers back over her and said, that's not going to happen in this house. That's not going to happen here. That's not going to happen with me. And I didn't really, there was no training for that. Right. 
that was just, oh my gosh. And Linda walked in right after that and I was just uh, pulling the covers over and then we prayed with her that night. And that changed that trajectory of that relationship for her and for us, that she understood that there was a, she could trust us. And, and it's what I've been saying ever since then about the importance of a godly man in the lives of kids in foster care. Most men in their lives have used and abused them, and they need to see what a godly man is, is supposed to do and how he's supposed to lead a household and how he's supposed to love. And that's such an important role for us as men to make sure that we are living that out in every way possible. And, and integrity is the uh, is the key to that. We've got to live a life of integrity, especially when no one's looking. Well, from that great interview with Tom, which was uh, episode 48, we're going to go to the first of the two-part episodes that we were able to have uh, during the the last season. And the first is episodes 53 and 54, and this is number six. It's with Jeff Sandifer. He talked to us about the education system, how we can disrupt uh, education in our, in our country and around the world. Uh, I'm going to give you one little clip from part one and one from part two. The first one talks about uh, two of the three things that drive everything they do at the Acton Academy, which is what he's really sharing with us in, the, in these interviews. And the first one, uh, he shared a little earlier in the interview, but you know, you're going to have to go listen to the interview to get it, uh, to, to go listen to the entire episode. To, to hear that. And I, I imagine you will after you hear this little clip. And then the part, uh, the second, the second little clip talks about the influence of a parent's attitude on a child's education and how critical the parent's attitude is to how the student uh, will hopefully, uh, the, the parent will be a part of the student's flourishing. Hopefully they'll be part of the flourishing and not a part of the failure. So uh, listen in and uh Again, you know, with all this, I look forward to hearing your feedback as with, with anything that we do, we want you to engage. And so I hope that you'll do that with this. Um, as you listen to Jeff, um, I hope you're going to really learn it a ton as I have from this man. You know, each person is put on this earth, not just a, a child at a school, but each mm-hmm. person is put on this earth to find a calling and change the world. Um, that uh, we believe that young people should be in charge of their own learning. That doesn't mean they don't have guardrails, they don't have goals, uh, but it, it's a personal journey. And, and I think one of my great discoveries of being around Acton is that teaching and learning aren't very correlated. We often think if we taught someone something, they must have learned it, but it's not actually true. If you want to learn something in today's age, you can learn it. So we want young people to be in charge and excited about their own learning. And then Finally, that that learning these days is not about knowledge. It's not about uh, regurgitating information. In an age of Google, uh, we're past that. And so we really believe it's about learning to learn. So knowing the process of how to learn something, learning to do, actually doing something in the world and learning to be. This idea of character and changing and pursuing your hero's journey in community and how that changes you. Mm. Can you, can you dig deep, a little bit deeper into that learning to do and learning to be, and, and I think the importance of identity and knowing why we're created to do what we're created to do is so important, but so often neglected in our education system today. And can you, can you dig into that just a little bit deeper for our audience? Sure. Um, and, in in the learning to do, uh, we would have young people in quest, which we'll probably talk about in a minute, but mm-hmm. in these narrative based journeys, you feel like you are Thomas Edison in his Menlo Park lab and you're inventing the light bulb. 
or you feel like you're you know, Harry Potter going out to slay Lord Voldemort. Um, so in these in these quests, you had this desire to do something important, but you have to actually do something, right? You have to actually go conquer the dragon. You have to actually make the light bulb light up. You have to. So there's there's real things in the real world that have to be done, and it takes great courage to do those. And so really, in a lot of ways, Acting Academy is about learning to fail early, cheaply, and often. And failure, why no one likes failure, I can't stand failure, it's necessary to have the courage to risk and to fail to grow. And, you know, I love C.S. Lewis always says that the you know, single most important virtue is courage, because from that all other virtues flow. And that you have to have the courage to love, to do, to, you know, to, to actually take a risk. Um, and so learn to do, the courage to act, to actually craft something on this earth that matters actually translates into learn to be because that's what forges a character. Have you had any experiences where the parents really aren't that educated or aren't involved in the child's education to see how that might work? Because I know that's the situation in a lot of uh, places around the world. Well, again, we've had all different kinds of parents. And the one thing I would say to anybody that wants to be an owner, the young people are delightful and um, while you know you'll have up days and down days and struggles, um, it's always on an upward plane. So dealing with dealing with young people, terrific. Parents are really hard, uh, including me. Right? I mean, because most of the time, the things we worry about for our children have nothing to do with our children. It has to do with ourselves. So if I was bullied as a child, I'll see bullying everywhere. Um, if I was um, not good in math. I'll fear my child not being good at math. And so parents, I, I don't think it's a matter of education, frankly. I think it's a matter of courage because a parent who can't read and can't write, there's plenty of things out there. If you've got access to the Internet or you even got access to a, 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 a small uh, node where you can get a hard drive and download things, you can learn almost anything in the world today. So I know there are places in the world you don't have that. And I'm not speaking about those places, but any place where you have the Internet, a parent doesn't have to be educated. They just have to believe in their child and try. So I, I uh, but parents are very hard. And Laura and I continue to make lots of mistakes as parents ourselves. So we're very, you know, we're, 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 we're not pointing fingers. We're pointing fingers at ourselves, if anything. Right. But parents that allow their children to grow and make mistakes and tend the garden um, are doing a wonderful thing for humanity. Parents who try to either neglect or overmanage their children, and I think either of those are destructive, um, are not serving their children well. Well, now coming in at number five is Michael Miller. Uh, he is from episodes 46 and 47, parts one and two, that kicked off season three. So Michael is with uh, the Acton Institute, and he created Poverty Cure, Poverty Inc., and with a bunch of other great people, as he makes clear throughout the interview. But these two clips I wanted to share with you, again, the first from part one, the second from part two. The first is why we need to have a heart for the poor and a mind for the poor. And the second, he speaks to something that we talk a lot about on this show, and I'm so glad he brought it up. Um, he talks about the interconnectedness of family strengthening and, and several other issues and poverty alleviation. And, you know, he also shares with us in this little bit um, some bonus stuff that, that you're going to definitely be better for. 
throughout this conversation we I had with him, and I, I definitely want you to go back and listen to it because it is so thick. It's so good. Um, but he talks about how the orphanage system in Haiti is actually creating incentives to give their children to, to parents to give their children away, and and what we can do about it. And he also gave some advice on how we can discern who to collaborate with and partner with around the world. So listen to this, and then go back and uh, check out the full interview with Michael Miller because it's it's something that is just full of, of amazing wisdom. Well, I mean, there's a lot of layers on, on that in one sense, um, but you know, so I guess one way to to think about it is, <clears throat> so remember this bumper sticker years ago? It said, "Practice random acts of kindness." Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Christians really are not called to practice random acts of kindness. It doesn't mean we're not supposed to open the door for people. Mm -hmm. What I mean is that Christians are called, and all human beings, but specifically Christians are called to exercise the virtue of charity, of Mm -hmm. Christian love, right? That is guided by reason and oriented to truth. Mm -hmm. Right, so let me unpack that, right? We're the Christian love, what is Christian love? It is to seek the good of the other. It's to will the other's person's good. It's to desire their benevolence. That's Christian love, right? That's love. Mm-hmm. And then ordained by reason, right? Well, why? Because we're created in the image of God. And in the beginning was the logos. And logos means word as we know, but it also means reason. And so we're, we're reasonable beings created in the image of a reasonable God. And so we're supposed to act with love according to reason. And it's oriented to truth, Right. So there's a theologian. He says, charity without truth degenerates into sentimentality. Hmm. Okay, let me repeat that. Charity without truth degenerates into sentimentality, just feeling feelings on behalf of the poor. Right. But so we're supposed to exercise not feelings on behalf of the poor. We're supposed to exercise the virtue of Christian love to seek the goodwill of another person. In a reasonable way, because we're reasonable beings, oriented to truth and the truth about that person, right? Mm. Who is not an object, is not a thing, but a subject, right? And I mean that in a grammatical sense, right? Not a subject of a king, but a subject, a protagonist, right? right? And that what we've done really is, and, and I don't, and I don't think it's because we have bad a- a- intentions. I don't think it's like people are bad. I mean, I'm sure there's always bad apples, but that's right. like 99% of people who want to go help the poor do it because they, they feel they're called to do something right. Mm-hmm. Christians or non-Christians. It's like, okay, they see people in suffering and they say, I want to do something about it. Right. But the problem is our model I think is disordered. And, and, and this, I think the dominant secular model, but also the dominant way Christians think about it. And we've reduced We've moved away from Christian love, charity, into humanitarianism. Hmm. And we haven't taken truth seriously, and so we become sentimental. So we feel feelings. And so what happens is we turn poor people into objects, Hmm. objects of our charity, objects of our pity, objects of our compassion. And then, sorry, instead of treating them like subjects, like persons created mm-hmm. in the image of God with an eternal destiny. Right. And then, but so we have this broken kind of objectification. And I mean, and we could talk about, I don't know how much time we have, but we could talk about, you know, how the Genesis gives us deep insight and in why we do that. But, mm-hmm. but uh, maybe that's for another, another time. But we, we 
treat people like objects. And then we combine a kind of modern social engineering. Mm. And we're like, okay, we're going to like do these 10 policies and we're going to eradicate extreme poverty forever. And well, no, we aren't. And so what ends up happening is we have these strong feelings. We care about the poor, but we don't sometimes put those strong feelings in a context of the reality of the human person as a subject and our guide to reason. And we also don't take economics seriously enough. So we end up doing policies that actually harm the very people we want to help. And that's a theological and a philosophical answer, which I could make it more concrete. But um, sometimes, you know, Phil, I'm going to be a little bit polemical. You know, when we want to care for the poor, we get this idea like, no, no, yeah, okay, that's interesting, all your philosophy and theology stuff, but I want to do something. Right. Well, yeah, unless it's the wrong thing. Right. You know, and, right. and I'm not saying, by the way, that I, I have the right thing. If mm-hmm. I had the right thing, I'd, I'd, I'd be on like a even bigger podcast than yours. Yeah, right, okay? right. So, I mean. There are some <laughs> of those out there from what I've heard. Me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I'm, what I'm saying is that, you know, good people can disagree and there's not a single solution, but that I think we do need to take very seriously you know, the, the mental models, the framework through which we approach the way we engage with poor people. And I would argue, and this is what we argue in Poverty Inc., Mm -hmm. in Poverty Cure, that the dominant mental models, the dominant frameworks of the way we think about poverty are sentimental and social engineered, and they're broken, and they don't take seriously the reality of the situation and the dignity of the person. And this is what we mean by you need not just the heart for the poor, not just feelings on behalf of poor people, but you need to really think things through. If you come from a, what would you call an, an intact biological family, so your mother and father, your biological parents, married, living together, you're right into that family, and you're raised by that family. If you're from white, Caucasian white, mm-hmm. from that, that family situation is 8%, okay? That's 92% chance that you're not gonna end up in poverty, right? Mm-hmm. Now, we know poverty is always a possibility because there's always there could be tragedy, there's sin, there's error, mm-hmm. there's you know lots of different things that can can lead, you know cause it. But ninety two percent chance that you're not going to be in poverty, and only eight percent you will be. Mm-hmm. If you're from a broke like a, a broken family where you don't have the biological parents living to get married, living together, but you know there's single parents or or whatever it might be, or out of wedlock birth, whatever right. it might be. You, it's like in the, I forget the exact number. I got to get the, the number, on, not in front of me, but it's like in the thirties that you're going to end up in poverty, like 35% or something chance you're going to end up in poverty. Mm. I mean, that's remarkable. Wow. Now, if you're from an African American family, that's not intact. That's a broken family. And, and by the way, I think it's like 70% of African American children are born out of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is mm-hmm. a serious cultural problem, a social problem for the United mm-hmm. States. Okay. And there's a reason, and there's, you know, and this is part of it's because bad policy has encouraged this. Right. Um, uh, but that's a whole, we can talk about that another time. But um, if you're from an African-American family that's in, in bro- broken, your chance of being in poverty, I think, is like 49%. Hmm. So it's one and two. And part, wow. and, and the reason it's part of, one of the reasons it's higher than, than white poverty is partially because it, um, because African-Americans are about 12% of the population. Uh, and they tend, those families tend to be kind of concentrated in places. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it gets a little higher because they're more concentrated, whereas the white population is spread out a little bit more. So you may have that type of poverty in like certain levels of Appalachia, but generally for the population it drops down because it's spread out. It's not concentrated. OK, so but you, have, you have basically a half, almost 50 percent chance of even poverty. If you come from a intact 
African-American family, your chance of being in poverty is 8%. Mm. It's the same as a white person, right? Family plays a super important role. Wow. I, and, and so what happens if you look at, you know, this is, again, we're topping another topic, but if you look at the situation for African-Americans, 12% of the population, like 80, or I think 70, 80% of the abortions, hmm. okay, right? Because yeah. Planned Parenthood and other people are putting a, abortion clinics down there. Into, into their, mm-hmm. into their, into mm-hmm. the, you know, down in these neighborhoods. Okay. And, uh, and then they put them in, down into white neighborhoods too, but they're putting them into, into poor black neighborhoods. And then those children who make it out of the womb are oftentimes sent to failing schools dominated right. by powerful interest groups. Mm-hmm. And we often imprison their men. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I was, I gave, I talked about this and I had, a, a, I would give this, give this talk and, um, in the audience, I, there were a lot of people, it was a big audience, but in the audience, I didn't realize there were nine or 10 African-American pastors from D- inner city Detroit. And afterwards they were sitting at a the table, they said, come talk to us. And they wanted me to talk about what I'd said. And we were talking about these things. And they told me there are many boys who are 13 years old who've never been hugged by their father. They, mm. They've never been hugged. So there, there, so, so that there's also a sense of family breakdown that, that we see really powerfully in the United States, but family generally speaking is, is an essential part, not just of human flourishing, right. But also of wealth creation. Right. And I think this is one of the things that, that I, let me conclude, like talk about this part that I want to conclude with that. That's so important from the Christianity gives insight to now general, I mean, again, Christianity is primarily concerned with the salvation of souls and getting people to heaven. Mm-hmm. And it's concerned with helping to create the conditions for human flourishing on earth. Right. right. So Jesus said, I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you look at the, the gospels and look at the letters, you know, Peter and Paul are constantly talking about how to live with one, be kind to one another, speak with one another in Psalms. Right? Don't be rancorous. Don't be angry. Don't yell at one another. Right. Right. And so, and this is what we try to practice in our families. Not always very well, mm-hmm. especially when they need to go to bed. But, um, but you know, we're trying to, you know, you tr- this is the guide is to be gentle with one another in your families, right? Because the family plays this incredibly important role for human flourishing. So Christianity is concerned with helping create the conditions for human flourishing. And so clear title to land, justice, access to justice in the courts, fair trials, um, ability to participate in the economy, right? Mm-hmm. All these things actually are part of the Jewish and Christian traditions, right? And so is strong family life and the the dignity and the importance of the family. Mm-hmm. And they're all actually mutually reinforcing and interconnected. And when those things break down, it creates poverty. And one of the, this is a little bit of a jump, but one of the things that's very interesting to think about is you can look at what the via negativa, like the negative way of looking at it. Socialists of all stripes find that there are three primary obstacles to their socialist reform. Their religion, private property, and quote unquote, this present form of marriage. Okay. So socialists recognize the interrelated, mutually reinforcing nature of religion, property, and family. Mm. And by the way, so do the Christian tradition forever. But mm-hmm. oftentimes as Christians, we forget about that. Mm-hmm. Right? And, but it's in, sometimes we need people who are opposed to those things to make us remember, oh, right. If you attack the family, 
you hurt private property and religion. If right. you attack religion, you hurt private property and the family. If you attack, attack private property, you hurt religion and the family. Because yeah. where is it that primarily religion and culture gets passed down? Not in the sermon, right. in the family. Right. And private property creates that space for families to live out their freedom and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And so the point of this kind of, in one sense, circuitous answer is that all of these things are, are interrelated and mutually reinforcing. Right. And family life is not, we're not radical individuals to just pop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. When we're born into families that are, that are care, that care for us, that give us opportunity, that gives education, the chance of being in poverty is very low. Mm-hmm. And when families are broken, then human flourishing is stunted. Right. And when human flourishing is stunted, it and ultimately has economic effects. But our main concern is not economics. Our main concern is human flourishing. All right, next up, coming in at number four is episode 49 with Dr. Sharon Ford. And she's with Focus on the Family. And uh, in this uh, clip, she, she shares with us the importance of family and of a father in a child's life. You know, and she also shares in this interview about wraparound care, about how we can all get involved with foster care and adoption, even without fostering or adopting and so many other things. So definitely go back, listen to episode 49 after, after you hear what Sharon has to share with us. You know, I was, um, texting with a friend of mine and he's an adoptive dad and he had went to his, his, the, his two children's um, youngest children school had a father daughter dance and these girls were just giggling just just overdone overjoyed about that they were going to get dressed up and that dad was going to dance with them mm. and i was like oh god that dads are so critical that we see as, as young women, as young girls, we see ourselves through our daddy's eyes. We see the hope for our future. We look, we think about the man we're going to marry, the boys we might date and what dad will say. You, you, you know, it, it helps, um, there's a, has a protection there when we think of our dads. There's strength when we think of our dads. There's guidance, there's um, hope. We look at how dad looks at mom and, and, and even when he holds her, oh, oh we, we laugh and giggle about, oh, daddy kissed mom. But that's showing appropriate affection at appropriate time in life. There's so many teaching opportunities as young girls see their dads. And gosh, when I think about boys, that men know men make men. Hmm. Boys come, become men, but they see manhood through the eyes of their dad. And so they watch, our kids are watching us all the time. And they're listening, even when we think they're not, when they're rolling their eyes, when they're smacking their lips, when they're yelling or screaming, when they turn their, they've got their music on, they're still watching mom, they're still watching dad. And so they, parents are the image of who kids hope to some, sometimes be. I remember saying, oh, I'll never do that. I'll never do that when my parents were facing me. Um, oh, I'll never say that to my kid. I, I can't tell you how many times I've caught myself going, oh, my God, I thought I said I'd never say that. I'd never do that. Right. But I did because I was parented, you know, by my mom and my dad. And, and that's what kids need. They need a safe place to make mistakes and to be um, disciplined and 
provided guidance and that's what family does for you that's what mom does that's what dad does but dads show girls how to be young women and what to expect out of a man and dads show our young men how to be a man how to be the protector how to be um, the breadwinner how to um, appropriately um, use God's wisdom about discipline um, and discipline doesn't mean harm. Discipline is about guidance and boundaries and structure. Um, and what better place to learn that than in the in, with the mom and a dad in your home in the home? Well, this next clip is from our third most popular uh, episode of 2017. It's from Peter Greer, and you know he answered a question I asked him about uh, how thinking about our mortality impacted his life and hopefully will impact our, ours in ways that will help us fulfill our purposes that, and, and uh, help us to really think about how our lives matter in the eternal perspective. So that was actually from one of his books, 4040 Vision, a fantastic book. Peter talked about that and so many other things in this in this episode that really focused on self-care and a topic that is so important to me. And I hope that it's something that you're thinking about regularly. So listen to this, learn from it, and then go listen to the full episode when you get a chance. In 4040 Vision, um, you, you talk in there, there's a chapter, I think it's called Immortal. And when you read the book, uh, it's it it it's just tackles some really tough issues in some great ways, but and it goes through Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes to do so. Um, but you talked in one of the chapters about considering immortality caused you to live and love just a little bit differently. Well, how how has it changed you specifically in your approach to your work with Hope International? Yeah, so. Part of that whole conversation uh, is really um, is really flowing from from a recognition. Uh, so when we, we worked on mission drift, we found that organizations tend to drift from their founding purpose and identity, and they do it consistently, and it happens quickly, and it happens more than any of us ever, uh, I believe, realize that we slowly move away from our core commitments and convictions. But as we did the research thinking about how drift happens, we saw something really interesting is that even if you pay attention to all of these organizational issues of funding, of governance, of strategy, of, of, uh, of metrics, all of these pieces which are important, drift is still going to happen unless you pay attention to what happens at a very personal and individual level. And uh, reading in uh, both The Economist, uh, The Atlantic, uh, there's been a lot that's actually come out recently about this about how statistically there's this period in life, uh, broadly defined age 35 to 55, that tends to be a danger zone where people tend to drift in a pretty significant way. And so we started looking at this question about how does drift happen, not at an organizational level, but at a personal level. And uh, we found that drift is nothing new. Perhaps the greatest example of drift is this example that we find in the Bible, the example of King Solomon that had such a beautiful start asking for wisdom and mm -hmm. such a, he was given so much in terms of keys to the kingdom, literally. And yet you look at the end of his life and you look at his memoir and you realize he drifted in a way that had a horrible impact on himself, on his family, on his nation. 
And so it was trying to diagnose, hey, how does that happen? And so part of it is this idea about actually being okay to look at our mortality in the eyes and say, you know what, our days are finite. And it's an unpleasant thing. It's something that no one really wants to think about unless we're forced to, we're forced to put on the suit and go to the funeral. But what if we could actually be given the gift of on our own, considering to count our days, know that they're limited, and I am sure, I am sure that I live differently when I remember that, uh, that, that this, this, my days here are limited and how do I want to spend today? And it will become less about building, uh, about projects, and it'll be more about building and investing in people. And uh, it'll be less about me, and it'll be a whole lot more about you. Um, and, and, and this is where faith, again, just such a critical part. I think that when you look at your mortality, you are far more open to ask the big questions of meaning and significance. And for me, that made me even more grateful for the scandalous message of grace uh, that is found in my relationship with Jesus Christ. So when you, when you learn to count and number your days, I think you live and you love and you serve differently. Hmm. And as part of that, you you talk about how in your 40th birthday party, I believe is your 40th, uh, you shared your epitaph with with the people that were at the party with you. Is that right? Yeah, kind of kind of a little sick, right? And, and my wife's comment was, uh, "How much longer are you going to be working on this uh, this book?" <laughs> yeah, no, it was kind of fun, and we did have carrot cake because I thought that would be healthier too. Time to kind of live uh, live, live a healthy because I want to be around for a little while as uh, as much as it depends on. Some of the lifestyle uh, choices. So, um, but yeah, I, I read through my um, what I hope would be read at my funeral, um, and uh, it had less. It had nothing to do with accolades. Uh-huh. Uh, it had nothing to do with credentials. Uh, the things that we spend so much time thinking about, and uh, it was different. And you know, David Brooks has this great TED talk about the difference between our resume virtues and our eulogy virtues. And uh, that exercise for me was very helpful in clarifying what are the eulogy virtues uh, that I want to spend my life thinking about and, and, uh, and, and, uh, and cultivating. All right, now we're getting close to the end. We're at number two. And uh, for those of you old enough out there listening in, I feel a lot like Casey Kasem. So I can't really do his voice, but uh, just imagine that smooth voice coming over coming over your uh, headphones or your car, wherever you're listening. And uh, get excited because we're close to that number one podcast episode of 2017. So coming in at number two was Kent Anon. And this man is another man that I respect tremendously. He's a friend, and he's doing some amazing work with Haiti Partners. So this, uh, this clip I wanted to, 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 to share with you was kind of a fun one. He shares, shares with us about what a Haitian proverb can teach us about focus and justice, and also three critical questions that we, we should ask uh, before, during, and after missions trips um, to be able to hopefully ensure that we can do the best we can do and hopefully not help or not hurt more than we help. So listen to what Kent has to say. And, uh, I hope, you know, you're getting a little excited for that number one, which is going to come right at you after you hear from Kent Anon. As we've kind of alluded to throughout this, this interview as well, the, the idea of short-term missions, which we're not going to be able to solve the, the issues and all the, the controversy and discussion and debate today. But you in the book talk a lot about 
you know, how these practices can, can be directly applied to short-term missions. But you also have th- three questions um, that you kind of you lay out that we can ask uh, to vastly improve the way we do short-term missions. At least that's the way I see it. Um, yeah. Can you share those questions and, and why you think, uh, why they're so effective um, if we seriously examine ourselves through them? Yeah, I, I thought, because I've been part of um, short-term mission trips. I've gone on them. They were informative for me when I was back in high school and I've, I've led some of them as well. So, you know, I was thinking, well, these and, and to see them do well and see them do badly. So I was thinking, well, these three questions, I think, you know, there, there are other important issues. But I thought these three questions um, to me can really help us run through the grid if we're if we're doing a good job on these or if we're being exploitative. And one is um, how are we respecting people when we go? You know, so how are we speaking about people? Are we looking to be are we is it all about us or is it actually about the people we're we're going to visit? How are we talking about people? Are we taking people's pictures without their permission you know what are we saying on our facebook posts so like really thinking about this love our neighbor as ourselves and make it like take some time there you know and uh and if we answer that question well i think that can help us a lot uh the second question is a lot of people go on these trips and come back and say well the hospitality of people was was just incredible and you know they had so little but they they received us into their their homes into their lives and all that and so the second question i have is okay if we receive this hospitality then uh, what is our commitment to them for the long term? Mm. Because if we just went somewhere where people have very few resources and they're incredibly generous to us and we leave without a long term commitment, then uh, then maybe we exploited them instead of sharing a meaningful experience with them. Right. Um, and I think if we're not asking that question, we may we may leave unaware because people are being generous and kind to us. And if, if we don't ask that, we may leave and be on to the next. That was a meaningful experience. We're on to the next thing. But, you know, if we if we did that and we visited a community where there are a lot of needs and they received us well, uh, I think there might be implied there that we have to have some kind of long term commitment. And then the third question is, what difference does it make in my life when I return back home? You know, so like we've, we've started out talking about uh, refugees, you know, so we go, go visit somewhere. So what is, what is um, visiting people who are in need, who are vulnerable, mean for how I vote about uh, on issues that would have an impact on refugees or you know, um, how, how does it make a difference for how I, I plan my personal budget or how, how we make decisions as a church. So, so those three questions of how do I respect people when I go, what kind of long-term implication does it have for my relationship with them and helping in the long term? And then thirdly, what difference does it make in my life when I come back home? I think that can be a helpful grid to run short-term missions through just because we, I think people go with good hearts mm-hmm. um, on short-term missions, but I think uh, I call it in the book, I think we have to pay a bit of a respect tax right. uh, when we do this, because I think we're, we're coming from the place of privilege. We have the chance to go and a lot of people don't. And so I think there's um there's a bit of a respect tax um, by answering those three questions. Well, that if we pay and in the long term, it's going to be good for the people we visit as well as good for us. Well, I hope the suspense isn't killing you too much because we are now, we've reached the end. We're here with our number one episode of 2017, the Think Orphan most downloaded, most popular episode of the year. It is Delia Pop. 
And again, it was a two-part episode. This woman is doing some incredible work around the world. Um, you know, and, and I'm just going to pause for a minute before we go to these clips and just remind you that you can download all of these uh, episodes at the thinkorphan.com website. You can do it at iTunes. You can, you can hopefully, you're going to listen to the full episodes of all these. If you have already, I hope you do it again. If you haven't yet, you definitely need to listen to these folks because it was really one of the hardest things I've done uh, in 2018 and probably in 2017 as well was picking the clips from these because there were so many good ones. And this, this interview was actually one of the hardest ones to pick because she has so much good stuff and there's so much wisdom, so many amazing things that I learned from. It's about an hour and 20 minutes total and it's, it is the, some of the most valuable time I've spent um, doing this interview, preparing for this interview, listening to this interview. So, you know, uh, I, there's a reason this interview is the top one uh, of last year, and I imagine it will be one of the most popular ones over the years because it's timeless information that is extremely valuable for us to learn from. So I have, again, because it's a two-part interview, I took a little bit from part one, a little bit from part two. The first one discusses uh, really, uh, you know, her, her position, her take on Again, what we started this episode with, what we started this highlight show with was Mike Doris talking about the complex residential orphanage debate. And this is uh, Delia talking to us about really uh, her, her take on it and uh, sharing with us some of the issues with orphanages, some of the issues with residential care. Um, and then the, the actually the question after this, I asked her to talk about the other side um, of, of her position. And she shares her thoughts on that. But you're definitely going to have to go listen to the episode to hear that because I, I, I purposely left you a little bit hanging there. And then the second part, the second little clip from Delia talks about the importance of collaboration. I really wanted to finish this highlight show with that because she talks about what it actually looks like in practice. And, and that's such a big reason why we're doing this show is to encourage, to foster collaboration, to help us to understand how we can work together, to help us to understand how all this information can be used to help us to understand how we can love the orphan, love the vulnerable child, and to, to, and to also just really be better parents ourselves, be better people, be, be better uh, brothers and sisters and friends. So, uh, you know, without more, here's the number one episode of 2017 with Delia Pop. A lot of people listening probably have heard the reasons why orphanages are, you know, aren't the best yep. place for children. But can you can you uh, speak to that? Absolutely. Well, I think there are probably four different layers to answering this question. What we know, and we know it from years and years ago, is that institutional care is really not beneficial for children. And what the science tells us is that it is quite toxic, for, especially for young children. Nevertheless, older children and children with disability are very much at risk by being placed in such services. And no matter how hard we try to improve that element, the, the neuroscience tells us that children in that particular environment, because they cannot receive that one-to-one -one attention, that love and care, stimulation that children need to receive in order to grow to their full potential, they will always lead to children experiencing delay in their development, emotional, cognitive, uh, quite severe behavioral issues or emotional consequences. 
So we know, and the science tells us, that institutional care has a detrimental impact on children's development. What else do we know? We know that most of the children in orphanages are not orphans. So we know that this system creates a sort of a pool effect where children are being placed in institutions because of reasons that have nothing to do with the parents' willingness or love that they have to care for their children. I'll give you a simple example. And I, I just came back from a, from a visit to Zambia where 68% of the children placed in institutions are placed by their parents in order to access education. So my question is, do we need institutions? Do we need to set up orphanages? Or do we need to think of solutions to enable those families to send not one child, but all their children to uh, school and, and create those those um, channels and investments so that children can, can access education? What else do we know about institutional care? So we know it has... Um, an impact on children's development. We know that it, in institutional care, the prevalence, the incidence of abuse, neglect, including sexual abuse and, and sexual violence is much higher than in a general population. And there are plenty of studies available um, to document this. And most of the information actually comes from children who have been asked to, to share their experiences in, in such environments. We know that institutions actually try to respond to a situation providing one type of solution um, to a multitude of needs and circumstances. It's, it's a bit of a one solution fits all, and that's why institutions kind of fail to, to deliver for children. We also know that investing in institutional care, it's not the best investment. We are not getting the highest impact for the best outcome for children. And I will explain why. Just think about this one-way highway. We have families who experience risks and vulnerabilities. And your listeners will probably recognize, and you know what, this is across the world, single-parent families, families where parents experience mental health or health issues, uh, families who have more than the typical number of children in a family, family who are very poor, marginalized, isolated in their communities. So these families are all experiencing a number of risk factors. Now, in a system that relies on orphanage care or institutional care, there is no support provided to the families. And what happens is one little change in the circumstances of these families lead to a crisis. And then the orphanages will come in as a solution. Either we separate the child from the family because the crisis really has an impact on the well-being of the child, or children run away from home because they can't cope with not having something to eat, not being able to, to do certain, certain things. So we then commit children to institutional care. And we know from statistics that children will be in once entering institutional care, they're very likely to spend their entire childhood there. Mm. So that's quite a significant investment. You know, per month we spend 500 to $1,000 per child supporting that child through a system that no, we know it does not deliver huge 
outcomes for children. Now, just think about the power of those, you know, 500 to 1,000 pounds per month okay. being spent for and with the family, supporting the entire family to become stronger and therefore not only having an impact on one child, but really building a future uh, for that family and for the children who might come along in that family. And therefore, our investment is, is so much more productive. Um, to sum up, institutions do have a negative impact on, on children. They do have a negative impact on families because they force them to make decisions to separate from their children. And they do have a, an impact on societies as, as a whole. Um, they do represent a, a really poor investment of our very limited resources. Collaboration, I don't think we could do anything without collaboration, especially in this field. I think we are sometimes plagued by uh, very narrow agendas or, or maybe lack of trust between partners. But um, as an organization, we, we, we strongly encourage and, and support collaboration across the board with a number of key players. Um, I would like to highlight a couple of amazing examples of collaboration that we have in countries where we operate. Um, we are, for example, working in, in, in many countries in which we have mature programs to support small organization, small, medium-sized organizations, local organizations, first and foremost, to meet each other, to understand and learn from, from their own programs if there are areas where they can operate together if they can learn from each other, almost like creating, uh, you know, incubators for innovation, for, for scaling up interventions, for bringing resources all together. And we are trying by, uh, we, we are commencing this, this work always by putting out, you know, invitations for people to share their values, their mission, those who work in, in the child protection and, and serving children kind of arena. And slowly and gradually, over a period that usually is between one and two years, we work to support these organizations to build their skills, their capacity, including to building their trust. Um, so that despite the fact that we have different agendas and we all bring something to, to, the, to the table that might be different, we can all advocate in one voice. We can all be much more powerful in our collaboration and engagement with governments because governments are a critical element of collaboration here if if our work is to be sustainable if we want to be able to support the building or rebuilding of a foundation for children to live and grow in safe and happy families what we need is not only our ability to deliver that on the ground, but we need governments who will become accountable to ensuring that whatever we build is going to be sustainable. It's going to be funded. It's going to, to be embedded in policy and legislation in the countries in, in which we, we work. Um, I think it's one, there are so many advantages around collaboration. One is the fact that you can, you have a safe space where you can share your work and you can learn from others. Second is you are enriching yourself by getting acquainted with other approaches and, and you know, different kind of groups uh, that, that come into place supporting communities. Third, you find synergies. We, for example, 
collaborated with the faith-based community to recruit foster carers for children with special needs. Mm -hmm. That was the most amazing collaboration, which led to us demonstrating that children with special needs can be cared for in families, in communities, in countries like Rwanda and Sudan. Uh, we collaborated with the faith-based community in Sudan, where we managed to support children uh, to move from an institution, you know, children born out of wedlock, into emergency foster families. And that was encouraged by the religious leaders in the community. And the adoption or reintegration of children was, again, supported by the same stakeholders. We collaborated with, with NGOs in countries like Moldova, Romania, um, simply by creating a platform where we were able to exchange our our views. But ultimately, we ended up with informal or formal coalitions whereby our voice is very strong when we have to constructively criticize governments that uh, might forget what are their key uh, obligations or, or mandates or they, they struggle to put uh, funding where their political commitment is. Um, it's, it's collaboration is, is absolutely critical. And I think there are, there are um, of course, there are concerns. And, and usually there are concerns around protecting your intellectual property, protecting your approach, not being judged. Uh, um, I would advise people to ensure that, first and foremost, there is an openness to listen, mm -hmm. to listening to what other people do and say. Second, that there is a shared uh, set of values um, that organizations share. I suggest and always advise uh, for, especially for collaborations that lead to joint implementation and joint fundraising for a good due diligence process to be put in place to ensure that, you know, your investment in the partner organization is, is going to be reflected by the same kind of standards in terms of governance, transparency, accountability, etc. Um, and I would say, uh, last but not least, allow the diversity of the points of view to strengthen your collaboration and, and bring different different points to a discussion that ultimately needs to support what we were discussing before, the best interest of the child. Well, thank you, Delia. And just to thank you again, a big thanks to all of our guests, to all of you out there listening. We couldn't do this without any of you. Um, and you know, all of you play a huge role and I, and I hope that you are taking what you're learning. You're helping orphaned and vulnerable children in, in awesome ways that you're learning from what we're teaching you. I, I, I pray that, uh, you know, you do go and you take some time to review this show because that is how more people are going to be able to learn, uh, from what these guests are sharing from the different feedback that we're able to have from the little things that Karen's able to share. Um, and I'm able to share, you know, from what we're learning and, uh, and you can take all that and, and help others to be able to learn from it too. So review the show, um, share it with your friends. Hopefully you can share it with 10, 20 of your friends that you know. Go do that right now. If you can just share it on Facebook, social media, whatever it may be. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, I pray that you're taking what you're learning and you're using it in, in great ways, you know, big and small, to help you love the orphan and the vulnerable children more and more each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. 
We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.